Hi, I'm Ali, and I'll be reading the Bible this morning. The passage is from Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24 to 29. Um, please follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Therefore, anyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Thanks, Ali. Morning, everyone. My name's Mark. If you haven't met, I was, I'm from Trinity Church, Allgate. I was here about five weeks ago kicking off this series, and it's great to be back with you again. It's always nice when you preach a sermon and they ask you to come back again rather than just saying, no, thanks, <laughs> don't want to see you again. Um, so it is great to be with you this morning. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, back in the day, I used to work as a civil and structural engineer, so not saying I would have done a better job of designing either of those houses, but that was, that was my background back in the day. So I used to design buildings, stormwater drains, that kind of thing, um, which means that when a, when a big storm hits and there's, there's lots of wind and rain, I get a bit nervous. Like, I think about all those things I designed back in the day, and I think I'm not the only engineer that thinks this way either, and you, you, just, you hope that you got the calculations right, and you hope that when the, the wind and the rain stop, that, that what you designed is still standing. It's always a, a relief driving around and driving past a, a building you designed or a stormwater system you designed and just seeing that it's, it's still working. It's always a, always a good feeling. And um, as we look at a passage that's about building on a firm foundation, I wonder, what is, it, what is the foundation that you're building your life on? What is it that gives you strength, that keeps you grounded, that sets the direction for your life? Um, what is it that makes you who you are? Maybe it's an identity that's deeply rooted in faith, family, work, or, or achievements of some sort. Um, maybe it's a, a motto or a philosophy that you like to follow. What's your foundation? Well, Jesus, he finishes this famous Sermon on the Mount by telling us that there's only one foundation that's worth building on. There's only one foundation that's going to survive the ultimate storm. It's been a, a challenging sermon. If you've been here the last few weeks, I'm sure you will have seen that there's some really challenging stuff that Jesus talks about in this Sermon on the Mount. And it's a challenging finish to the sermon as well. So last week, for those who were here, Jesus spoke of there being two gates that we can enter through, two roads that we can walk down, one that leads to life and the other one that leads to destruction. And there'll be people who enter the kingdom of heaven and people who won't enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And the intriguing thing is that you would have, you would have heard last week is that it's not simply going to be churchgoers who enter the kingdom of heaven and outspoken atheists or very immoral people who miss out. Jesus has said that there are going to be people who call me Lord, that is, people who, who have at least some Christian appearance, um, who don't enter into heaven. There are two types of people who hear my words. Jesus tells us. There's the wise person and the foolish person. 
And their fates, as we see in that passage, could not be any more different. And so we're going we're gonna to think first about the wise person, then we're going to think about the foolish person. So who is the wise person? Well, Jesus, Jesus says the wise person is everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Now, at the very least, we can be sure that this isn't simply about being better. Jesus isn't simply saying the wise person is the one who does better than everyone else, the better person. Because the words that that Jesus has been speaking in the Sermon on the Mount over the last few chapters show that the standard of living that he calls us to is unattainable. You know, you read through the Sermon on the Mount and it's calling us to inner and outer perfection. It's not not something that we can ever simply put into practice 100%. Um, No, the the clue to that, it actually comes right back at the start of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 3, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the very first line of the sermon. So Jesus is calling his hearers right from the the opening line of the sermon to realize their spiritual bankruptcy, to acknowledge that we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our relationship with God. Uh, And that's because of what the Bible calls sin. Uh, Sin is about my desire to do things my way, not not to do things God's way to reject God's rightful rule over my life, which he created me, and in in fact, he created all of us to live under. It's to choose to live under my own rule instead, to do things my way, to be my own king. And so the only hope we have of coming to God is by casting ourselves on his mercy. Because we could never earn the right to to a right relationship with God by our own goodness. And the Sermon on the Mount proves that beyond doubt, doesn't it? It it shows us what what God requires of us, what Jesus asks of us. And Jesus has shown us that even if we think we can obey God outwardly, even if we think that we can get these things right, the issue comes down to a heart level, doesn't it? The issue is with the state of our hearts on the inside. Now, putting Jesus' words into practice does still mean trying to get these things right. It means doing all the things that Jesus has told us in the Sermon on the Mount. It means uh, reconciling with the person that we've done wrong against. It means fleeing from the temptation of lust. It means loving our enemies. It means being sincere in prayer. It means recognizing the plank in my own eye before I point out what's wrong with everyone else. It, It means doing all these things Jesus has told us to do that we would have seen over these last few weeks. But it means doing them with the realization that I'm poor in spirit. It doesn't mean thinking, great, I'll do all these things and I'll be right with God. That'll be great. No, rather, it means recognizing that I fall short in my own strength. Genuine spiritual poverty, it means recognizing how far we fall short and how offensive sin is to God. But it will also drive us to want to live for him as well. We'll, we'll want to live out what's being talked about in the Sermon on the Mount as best we can. We just won't be self-righteous enough to think that we'll earn our salvation by doing it. Um, putting Jesus' words into practice begins with acknowledging that I'm spiritually bankrupt, that I can't do it on my own. I can't save myself. I can't be right with God by myself. We also need to recognize who Jesus is as well, knowing who Jesus is who's speaking these words to us. 
Uh, we saw in verses 28 and 29 at the end there that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. You know, you have this picture of Jesus giving this sermon on the mount to his disciples, the crowd slowly gathering as he speaks. And by the time he finishes speaking, there's, there's a big crowd of people listening and they are amazed at what Jesus has taught them because he taught as one who had authority. Now, I used to read that and think that what it must have meant was that Jesus just had some sort of aura about him. There was, there was just some sort of authority about how he spoke, which, you know, that might be partly true, but I, I don't think it was so much that as what Jesus was saying about himself. Uh, so if you re- remember back in chapter 5, if you were here, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, that, that's a huge claim for someone to make to that audience. He's, he's basically saying to the, the Jewish people there, I'm the fulfillment of everything that your religion stands for. You know that holy book you read? It's, it's pointing to me. It's about me. Uh, numerous times as well in the sermon, he tells his hearers, look, the law says this, but I tell you this. The law says don't murder, but I tell you getting angry is a serious sin. The law tells you don't commit adultery, but I, I tell you even looking lustfully at someone is sinful. And then, of course, in the, the passage that you would have looked at last week, he makes the ultimate claim in chapter 7, verse 23. He says, I'm the one who decides whether people go to heaven or not. I'm the one who makes that call. Jesus, he's speaking here with the authority of God himself, isn't he, when he says these things. It's no wonder the crowds are amazed. So what's the outcome for this wise person then? Well, Jesus, he, he likens the wise person to someone who builds a house on a rock. It's a, a firm foundation. The house stands firm during the fiercest of storms because it has the right foundation, as we saw in that kid's talk very, very vividly in the illustration. Um, so to some degree there, Jesus is saying that if, if we listen to him, if we, if we take his words to heart and we, we live them out, if we know our spiritual poverty, but we also know God's merciful love, then we'll have what we need to, to handle the storms and the trials of life. I, th- I think there's, there's a great level of truth to that. Um, but I reckon that there's something even more to it as well. Uh, because I think what Jesus has first and foremost in mind here is the final judgment. This sermon, this whole sermon he's preached has very much had the end in mind. That's, that's what he's been looking towards. Uh, the kingdom of heaven has been in view throughout here. Um, he's talked about there being a great reward in heaven, treasure in heaven. Jesus, he wants his disciples to, to fix their eyes on the end. And part of what makes the Sermon on the Mount so countercultural is that Jesus is telling his disciples to, to give up worldly things in pursuit of better and longer-lasting heavenly things, uh, which really cuts against the grain of the culture back then and, and cuts against the grain of the culture now as well. And because eternity is in view here, so is the final judgment. If you remember what Jesus said back in chapter 5, he said, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're even more righteous than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, the really impressive religious leaders back in that day. 
He also says anyone who murders or anyone who simply gets angry will be subject to judgment. So, so judgment has really been on the cards throughout. Um, he says as well, better to lose a body part that causes you to sin than go to hell. It's, it's a pretty extreme topic that he's talking about here. And then chapter 7, the wide gate and the broad road that lead to destruction. A bad tree that's, that's being thrown into the fire. People who call Jesus Lord but are turned away on that last day. So when, when Jesus uses the, the illustration of rain, streams and, and wind beating against a house, there's, there's a lot of things that, that he has in mind. There are a lot of things that we can, we can take from that. Um, but what he's ultimately pointing us to is this day of judgment when we either enter the kingdom forever or we're excluded from it forever. And really, this is the ultimate test of my life's foundation, isn't it? I think when we think about what we're, what we're building our life on, we really need to think, is this something that's going to get me through the difficult times of this life? Like when tragedy hits in this lifetime, when, when I go through difficult times, is what I'm building my life on going to help me to stand firm during these times? But the ultimate test, of course, is, is this day of judgment. Is what I'm building on now going to help me on the day that I give account before God for my life? I'm going to ask you a couple of questions now. They, they might seem a little bit confronting, but, but bear with me. First question is, if you died today, which I hope you don't, but if, if you die today, are you confident that you'd be saved? Do you think God would accept you? And if your answer to that question is yes, then the second question is, why? What is it that gives you confidence that God would accept you? If it's because you've lived a good life and that God would be happy with, then you haven't grasped what the Sermon on the Mount has been saying. Because Jesus is showing us that we aren't good enough on our own. And if that's the case, then why does the wise person stand firm on the day of judgment? Which well, because he knows that he can't save himself. He knows that he's not good enough. But what the wise person also knows is that Jesus came to do what we couldn't. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't. Jesus was the only person to live out the Sermon on the Mount perfectly without blemish. And he died to, to take on himself the judgment that we deserve for, for rejecting God and, and for falling short of his perfect demands. And so we're not saved by living a good life because we'll never be able to. We'll never be able to do that. We're saved if we accept our spiritual poverty, if we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, accepting his death in our place. Why can we be confident on the day of judgment? Why can we be confident on, on that day? Well, because we won't stand there and tell Jesus about all the great things that we've done for him, thinking that he'll be impressed. You might have seen that in last week's passage. You had all these people saying, Jesus, we, we called you Lord. Look at all these great things that we did for you. That's not what saves us. No, instead, we'll, we'll declare the far greater thing 
that Jesus has done for us. We'll escape the punishment that our sins deserve because Jesus took that punishment himself. I live up in the, the Adelaide Hills where it's generally about 10 degrees colder than where it is anywhere else in the world, except, except on swelteringly hot days where it happens to be the same temperature. You just get the best of everything weather-wise. Um, we've had a few really cold, rainy, stormy nights recently. The, the sort of night where you just sit inside with the heater on, with a hot drink in your hand, listen to the rain belt against your house, uh, just really thankful not to be sitting outside during the storm. And that's what that last day will be like for people who trust in Jesus. Relief that we've been spared. Not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has. See, the only firm foundation on that day will be the righteousness of Jesus, which he freely offers us at the cross. So that's the wise person. Uh, now we come to the foolish person. And Jesus, Jesus leaves us no room here whatsoever to be complacent because the wise person and the foolish person, they, they have this one thing in common. They both heard Jesus' words. They both heard Jesus' words. One put those words into practice. The other one didn't. It's not going to church and hearing Jesus' words week after week that saves us. It's building our lives on those words. In fact, I don't know about you, but I find it really sad looking at just how high census numbers are for Christianity in Australia. Like I, I realise it's a, a declining figure, but still uh, about 50% of Australians would identify as Christian. And yet most of those people um, rarely attend church, um, would rarely read their Bibles, and would rarely give any other indication of, of building their lives on Jesus' words. And it saddens me to, to wonder how many people in Australia and, and all around the world will, will go through life thinking, assuming that they're okay with God, only to find out otherwise when it's too late. Even sitting in church week after week isn't a sure sign that someone truly knows Jesus. Uh, so what's the fate of this foolish person? What's their fate? Well, they'll fall, Jesus says. The storm comes and, and it's devastating because there isn't a firm foundation. They'll face judgment and they won't stand because their foundation is not the perfect work of Jesus, but it's their own imperfect work, which will be found wanting. Now, I realize hell and judgment, they're not, they're not popular topics to talk about. They're not necessarily things where we're keen to bring up in the, in the work morning tea room and all that kind of thing. Um, but Jesus talks about them more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus is telling us that day is coming. Be ready for it. Build today with tomorrow in mind. You wouldn't buy a house if you, if you knew that the foundations were poor. So... Don't build your life on something that will collapse beneath you when you most need to stand firm. The d disturbing thing here that you, you might have thought about as you read it is that uh, it doesn't say anything about what these two houses look like from the outside. You know, the, the two houses, to, to, to someone looking at them, might have looked identical. 
Maybe the, fool, the foolish person's house even looks nicer than the wise person's house from the outside. Which goes to show that a life that's built on confidence in my own goodness rather than on spiritual poverty, it's going to look good in the here and now. But it won't survive the storm. I remember in my engineering days doing, doing an inspection at a really nice house in a, in a really nice neighbourhood. If you, if you looked at this house from the outside and you knew what neighbourhood it is, you'd think, oh, wow, you'd be lucky to, to own this house. Um, but what the family who had just bought that house hadn't realised was that there was a whole, a whole side of the house had the, the foundation missing underground. We went down to the cellar and had a look, and there was just a whole brick wall of the house that had no foundation whatsoever underneath it. It was literally built on thin air. And so under the right circumstances, you know, enough, enough rain, enough breeze, enough movement in the soil, and this, this house would completely collapse. And in the same way, someone's life... It may look impressive if it's not built on Jesus, but it can only end in destruction. Uh, this idea of judgment, it's something that, that people can find hard about Christianity. You know, how can good people go to hell? I'm sure that's a question that, you, that you've heard asked, or maybe one that you've asked yourself, or maybe, maybe one that you're still wrestling with yourself. It's a question that I'm actually really sympathetic to, because... Probably like most, if not all of you here, I know some amazing people who aren't Christians. I know some kind, caring, compassionate people, people that have been there for me during difficult moments in life, people that have shown great character who don't know Jesus. And I also know some less than amazing Christians as well. And you know, if I had to, if I had to order everyone I know in my life from order from people who I think are the nicest people to people who I know are the least nice people, it wouldn't be all Christians at the top and non-Christians below. Um, the idea that uh, people who I thought lived good lives might go to hell, while others who are less deserving might go to heaven, well, it, it goes against my natural sense of fairness. And perhaps you can relate with that. The reality is, that, though, that my sense of what's good is pathetic. It's so badly tarnished by sin. It's, it's not the reality of what's good. We all fall short. None of us deserve to be in relationship with God. No one deserves to go to heaven. The surprise isn't that good people go to hell. The surprise is that I could ever go to heaven. That's the shock here. That God would show his mercy to me by sending his own son to die for me. That's the surprise. There are two ways of responding to Jesus' words, he tells us. Putting them into practice and being saved or not. So are you wise? Not asking if you wear glasses or have a beard or get good grades or read the paper on train lines or anything like that. Are you wise or are you a fool? If you die today, are you confident that you'd be saved? If not, please have a, have a chat to Scott, have a chat to me, have a chat to Ada, have a, have a chat to someone here who you know and trust, because I'm sure they'd love to open the Bible up with you and show you the, the assurance that we can have in Jesus if we've put our trust in him. And if you are confident, if you, if you think 
yes, I would be saved if I died today, then why? Why is that? Is it because of what you've done? Or is it because of what Jesus has done? It's going to get pretty wet and windy on that last day. There's only one foundation that will hold. That's hearing Jesus' words and putting them into practice. Recognizing our desperate need, casting ourselves on his mercy, and trusting that he laid down his life so that we could withstand that day of judgment and enjoy life with him forever. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for Jesus' words to us. Uh, We do ask that you would help us not just to hear these words, but to put them into practice. We ask that as we reflect on Jesus' words, as we live them out, as we take them to heart, that they would give us strength in those difficult times of life, that that when the, the storms hit in life, when we go through tragedy, when we go through doubt, when we go through dark times, that those words would give us strength during those times, that they would be our firm foundation. And so much more, we, we thank you that on that last day when everything that we've said, thought or done is laid bare before God, we thank you that it's not going to be our works that get us into heaven, but it's going to be what Jesus has done for us. And so we do ask that you would help us to hold firm to the gospel, to know that we are spiritually poor and yet in Christ we are spiritually rich and help us to live not in our own strength but in yours and to long for that day when we'll be declared right in your sight, not by our merit but by the merit of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.